A punch designed by Cassius Clay to cripple every fighter living today. Jeremy Corbyn should have come out fighting. And at some point, I'm going to have that conversation with Jeremy. Yeah. My former friend. Well, I used to sit down as an activist in the early 80s, um, planning for left successes in London and elsewhere. And it came to the point where he didn't take my phone calls, he wouldn't reply to texts. And he had some explaining to do. Welcome to another episode of The Popular Show. I'm James A. Smith, and today our guest is Mark Wadsworth. Mark was uh, a, a common face on the scene of left and anti-racist organising in the 1980s. He was a prominent part of one of the biggest markers in anti-racism in Britain in the Stephen Lawrence case in the 1990s. And then he was, in more recent times, a prominent figure in the Labour Party anti-Semitism affair when he became one of the first uh, high-profile ejections from the Labour Party after uh, accusations of anti-Semitism. We're going to get into all of that. But first of all, Mark Wadsworth, are you well? Yes, as well as can be expected in the circumstances, as they say. I'm so glad that you've agreed to speak to us, uh, and I, I think that your case is a deeply revealing one about the recent discourse around racism, prejudice, and left politics in Britain. Um, before we get on to the, the story of your career and, and your your take on more recent events, there's, uh, you've just had a big victory. Last week, the Jewish Chronicle was forced to uh, issue an apology and uh, pay out in a, a libel case. Can we start just with this kind of current thing that's going on? Could you just tell us what that situation is? Well, after five years of having almost 50 stories in the Jewish Chronicle that were negative references to me, um, I decided enough is enough and uh, engage the services of the best libel lawyers in the country, Carter Ruck, uh, to sue mm -hmm. that publication. And, and prior to that, um, there had been uh, stories that I reported to the press watchdog, and they'd adjudicated in my favor and got the paper to change at least a dozen articles. I took on the Jewish Chronicle. Um, they put their hand up very quickly and admitted that they were in the wrong when my lawyers got in touch with them. They said that I'd been at a public meeting where there were threats made to Jewish people uh, saying that uh, the organization that held the public meetings, members, would visit Jewish activists in their home and, and intimidate them, and that the police had been called. So this was potentially criminal activity, or potentially, well, I've said that, potentially. 
And uh, it was just totally untrue. I wasn't at that public meeting, and I certainly uh, haven't made threats against uh, Jewish activists, nor would I. The Jewish Chronicle has represented itself as the voice of Jewish people in Britain. There's been a, a way in which, um, I don't know, a lot of commentators and even people on the left have been willing to treat it as almost in a kind of identity politics kind of way, that this is a, a, a publication that needs to be listened to as, yeah, as I say, the, the voice of the Jewish community. But it's pretty extraordinary, the sheer number of libel cases and damages that they've had to pay, yours is only the most recent case, uh, and the sheer weight of false stories that they've published, often against um, leftists, actually often against left-wing Jews. Um, I'm tempted to say that this publication is the, the, the closest thing to compare it to would be something like the Guido Fawkes blog, where it, it's actually a, a, a publication that's run by, edited by an extremely right-wing figure who publishes stories. It doesn't matter that they've had to pay damages to you, Mark. The damage is kind of done, that the, the story is out there and the reputation, um, the, your reputation has been damaged. Um, th this is also a, an institution that went bust, that's how many people are reading it in 2020, until it was rescued by a consortium, including John Ware and John Woodcock, two people who, you know, without getting into the details, are mainly uh, known in recent years for their uh, tireless campaigning against Jeremy Corbyn. Well, I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of uh, different journalistic setups, including the Chronicle. But what I can say is that... Um, John Ware masquerades as a journalist, a BBC journalist, an ex-Sun journalist. He made a despicable programme, uh, Is Labour Anti-Semitic, which found the party guilty on the most tenuous of uh, evidence from partisan members of the Jewish Labour Movement, which is a Zionist organisation, pro-Israel Zionist organisation, that absolutely hated Jeremy Corbyn. And in my journalistic experience, uh, the fact that they were a member of that organization, and um, were deeply partisan, should have been flagged up as a public health warning. So that's one example. John Woodcock, of course, we know, was a very right-wing Northern MP uh, who should have been in the Conservative Party. And well, he, he pretty much is now. Virulently <laughs> against Jeremy Corbyn. So that's a sort of company that is being kept as the uh, shareholders, the backers uh, of this uh, pro-Israel uh, publication that literally seems to go after. Talk about me going after Jewish activists. This publication seems to have um, set it as its life's work to pursue pro-Palestinian activists, uh, left-wing activists, and they made a big mistake going after a black socialist who has been an anti-racist all his life, has fought side by side with anti-fascists, going after the British National Party, closing down its Nazi bunker in southeast London marching against the fascists, being side by side with Jewish comrades. When the Sunday Times published 
David Irving's filthy Goebbels diary, diaries um, uh, series in the newspaper. Yeah. I was there with Ali G. I was on the Isle of Dogs when Derek Beacon became the first BNP councillor in this country, marching against the BNP. And for my sins being put on the fascist, um, uh, you know, paramilitary combat 18 death list, they said they would murder me. And it's just a travesty for anybody to suggest for a moment that I'm in any way anti-Semitic. It's been deeply wounded. Yes, I I think one of the sort of problems we have today, call it a witch hunt, call it cancel culture, but when somebody's accused of something, they can almost become synonymous with the thing that they're accused of, even in the eyes of the people defending them. So one thing I don't want to do here is to make out that the most important thing about Mark Wadsworth is that you're accused of anti-Semitism. Actually, I, I think that the important thing to kind of get up front is um, the, well, yeah, the, the, the sheer kind of perversity of the fact that the guy that they were accusing in 2016 um, had, yeah, as you're describing, had just kind of been there for all these landmarks in the history of British anti-racism. So you, you came you came a political age in the 1980s in the position in the kind of period of uh, resistance to the burgeoning uh, neo-fascist movements in Britain uh, and also the kind of period when the first black labor MPs were elected uh, you, you were kind of part of that milieu could, could you give us a sense of what that was like what it was like being um, a black guy on the left getting into politics in the 1980s? Well, I started out in trade unionism as a teenager. I was a member of the National Union of Journalists. In those days, we used to have a closed shop, which I think is a good thing, that you had to belong to a trade union in a workplace to get a job. And I rose through the ranks as a lay representative, becoming the father of the chapel, which is a shop steward then becoming chair of the Joint Shop Stewards Committee, representing four unions at Thames Television and 1,500 workers, the largest independent television company in the country. 1% of the workforce was black, and by black I mean African, Caribbean and Asian. And I was actually elected by that overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly white workforce to represent the workers and fight for their interests wages and conditions against a hostile management. I was on the provincial newspaper strike in the 70s uh, as a teenager. Uh, I was on uh, ITV strikes, TVAM, you may recall, when Margaret Thatcher wanted to smash the unions, uh, the miners, the television unions, whopping, where she wanted to smash the print, uh, workers' unions. These were the strongest unions. And she knew if she smashed us, she'd have defeated the trade union movement. So my background is trade unions. And then through that, I got involved in the Labour Party. 
And in 1983, I was one of the founders of the Labour Party black sections, which was like a black caucus within the Labour Party because there were no black MPs. We used to yeah. make the joke, and it was an iron, ironic joke rather than a, a funny one. Name two parliaments that are all white. The British Parliament and the South African Parliament. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just that it was only about members of parliament, because there had been uh, members of parliament of colour. But uh, in 1987, when four black sections members put themselves forward in winnable Labour seats, that's Paul Boating in Brent South, Bernie Grant in Tottenham, Diane Abbott in Hackney North and Stoke Newington, and Keith Vaz in Leicester East and they managed to get elected. And that was a historical breakthrough. And they went on to form a parliamentary black caucus. We brought out the milestone black agenda, which I edited a year later in 1988. So these were big steps forward. They were big defeats for the right wing of the party uh, under Neil Kinnock and Roy Hattersley at the time. And, um, marked us out as, as public enemies, as a threat to the status quo. The white male, middle class, privileged establishment, both in the Labour Party, Labour movement, and in wider society. And so I suppose we put a target on our heads from the get-go. And then mm -hmm. in 1991, I founded the Anti-Racist Alliance, which became Europe's largest black-led movement and we as you kindly mentioned um helped found the um justice for stephen lawrence campaign got the law changed twice on racial harassment and violence thanks to work we did with jeffrey Beinman, a leading jewish lawyer to come up with a racial harassment bill so ivan lawrence a member of the board of deputies of british jews who was chair of the home affairs select committee helped us despite the fact that he was a Tory. So you see this uh, work that we've been doing, and I've been doing specifically, particularly with Jewish allies. Jeffrey Byman, mm -hmm. I mentioned. Sir Ivan Lawrence, yeah. I mentioned. There was also uh, Ben Bernberg, who helped to set up the Anti-Racist Alliance Educational Trust, and he's still a friend of mine, although he's been retired 10, 15 years. The Anti-Racist Alliance Educational Trust still exists. It's still operating. I hope that gives a bit of a background. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, so the Stephen Lawrence case, this was for some younger listeners and, and the 50% of our audience that is international. This was a case in 1993 where a black teenager was uh, murdered by five uh, white youths uh, and the, the the case, well, the, the police were found in retrospect after significant campaigning to have been racist in their approach to the case, in their, their assumption that the murdered black boy was the one whose behaviour and connections and friends needed to be interrogated. Uh, and in the 
completely kind of negligent way in which they approached the investigation of the case. This uh, was a, a huge kind of turning point in how a lot of people in Britain saw racism in the country. And you were very involved both in the kind of the legal side of the campaign, what what, what you were campaigning to uh, have changed about the law, but also you were very involved in supporting the family, uh, the Lawrence family. And as I understand it, you were also present for the turning points really in public perceptions of the case where Nelson Mandela was um, prevailed upon to intervene. Could you tell us about those episodes? Okay, so how did I get involved in the first place? I was the national secretary, the leader of the anti-racist alliance. We had a headquarters in Clerkenwell. And we were dealing with scores of instances of racial violence and harassment, including murder. And the telephone rang and a comrade, Diane King, said to me, who I knew through the National Black Caucus, that there'd been another murder in Eltham, Southeast London. And don't forget there have been four. Rohit Dougal, Roland Adams, Orville Blair, Steve Lawrence was the fourth. This wasn't the first. Roland Adams was murdered in 1991. 14-year-old black boy murdered in a vicious racist attack. And um, I just said, we're, we're overwhelmed, we're inundated with work. Got a small um, cohort of people working, some voluntarily, some paid. It's an avalanche we're facing. She said, please, 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 can you come and meet the parents? They've asked for help. And I've recommended you, given your political background, your media background, in terms of being able to take this on politically and in terms of media management. So I agreed to go to Lanover Road in Woolwich, where the parents lived, met up with Dorian and Neville. It was a terrible sight, people wailing, the grief in there. Uh, house was full of people in a terrible state of shock. This was only a few days after the actual murder. And um, they said, would I help them in a campaign for justice, help set up one? And uh, I said, yes. We put a lot of resources into supporting the family. And it so happened that that was the borough of Greenwich. We had a very strong black section contingent there. So the mayor of Greenwich, Vicky Morse, was black sections. The chief whip, Carl Booth, was black sections. And we were able to swing the local authority behind the family, putting uh, reinforced doors, security windows uh, into the home. Uh, the Anti-Racist Alliance providing 24-7 security so that the surviving children 
Georgina and Stuart, for instance, could be walked to school with security. Just things like that. Paying the phone bill, which came to hundreds and hundreds mm. of pounds, because lots of calls yeah. had been made to Jamaica, quite understandably, because the family were descended uh, from Jamaica. Doing practical things, making meals, cups of tea, fielding inquiries from journalists. Not that there were a lot, because it, in the first instance, uh, the murder was ignored. Yeah. By the Voice newspaper. I remember going to the Voice and talking to the then editor and pleading with her, saying, please help us run a, a media campaign. And she said to me, we'll play a wait-and-see game and see how the Nationals take it, up, take it up. And the Nationals, they were playing follow, follow me. The, 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 way, the, the way the story gets told now is that uh, there was a, a media blackout on the case until Paul Dacre, the notoriously reactionary editor of the Daily Mail, realised that... Stephen Lawrence's father had recently been the painter decorator of his own house. Well, I can so, tell you about that story. Yeah, please do. We then started, first they ignore you. Tony Benn used to say to me, first they ignore you if you're a radical cause, then they attack you, and then no one can remember who was against you when you triumph. And they ignored us to start with, and then they started to paint the anti-racist alliance and myself as black militants who are trying to hijack this mm -hmm. grieving family, which is a complete lie. I've just told you, they invited us to come and help them. And so Neville was growing uh, and Doreen increasingly frustrated with this negative coverage of the murder, not concentrating on the fact that the racist murderers needed to be hunted down, but the type of people that were around the grieving family, the parents. And uh, we used to discuss this. Obviously, when we met, we discussed media, we discussed uh, political campaigning. And one morning, he took it upon himself, unbeknown to all of us, to walk to Paul Dacre's house, this hugely powerful Fleet Street editor, probably the most powerful Fleet Street editor at the time, go to his home in Islington and knock on the door. I don't know at what time in the morning, six in the morning. And apparently Dacre opens the door in his dressing gown and sees this uh, tall black man framed in his door. And he says, what do you want? And Neville says, do you recognize me? Do you remember me? And Paul says, remind me, he said, I decorated your house. So he said, yes. Okay, and I think he did remember him then. And he said, I'm Stephen Lawrence's father. And I think Dacre was absolutely gobsmacked and yeah. said, you better come in. And they sat down and they spoke. And I think Dacre was close to tears. And he picked up the phone to his news desk and his news executives and ordered a 360 degree change in editorial approach to the 
story. And after that, as a result, a black freelance journalist called Hal Austin was brought in because they had no black journalists. No <laughs> and he contacted me, and I knew him anyway, and he said, Mark, can you arrange for me to have a sit-down interview with Doreen and Neville? It's going to be a sympathetic one because that's what the editor wants. We're going to give space, you know, a page, two page, pages to the interview in the newspaper. So I uh, arranged for that interview to take place in Artillery Row in Woolwich, uh, Community Hall, White Walls. I sat in on the interview. I said to Hal, uh, if I don't like some of the questions, I'm going to stop you. And uh, the interview was conducted. He behaved himself. He was very um, respectful. And hey, presto, those two pages of golden news coverage appeared. And um, they, the paper, the Daily Mail, actually set up a Justice for Stephen Lawrence editorial unit headed by Stephen Wright, their chief crime correspondent, with a banner headline, you know, a banner on each of the pages every time they ran stories. And then they ran that, um, some say famous, others say infamous, front page where they printed the photographs of four suspects with the headline murderers. Murderers. Mm. And challenged the um, murderers to prosecute them, which is a bit showy, actually. Um I think that they'd, uh, I mean, that was potentially a contempt of court and the editor could have gone to, gone to jail. But because of their establishment contacts, including with the Attorney General, I think they'd already dis uh, boxed it off in terms of there was going to be no prosecution. And in fact, there is an argument to be had legally to say that it snagged any opportunity of prosecuting the four murderers because their defense could quite rightfully uh, have argued that they wouldn't get a fair trial because they'd already been found guilty by media. So I wasn't a great fan of that front page, frankly. And I wasn't a great fan of a newspaper that had a long record, including going back to the 30s, hurrah to the black church and supporting the fascists and Sir Oswald Mosley's fascists in Britain and had been a part of the uh, attack against the so-called loony left, people like myself, Linda Bellos, leader of Lambeth Council, um, Bernie Grant, leader of Harringay Council, uh, attacking asylum seekers, migrants, talking about muggers, young black men, it said, were swarming around the capitals the capital of London and attacking little old white ladies. So they had bad form. And I think they needed the Stephen Lawrence Justice campaign to almost detoxify the brand. And let's make this other point as well, that they were also attacking what they considered to be white trailer trash that embarrassed white people. <laughs> 
because you have to look at their demographic as the Daily Mail. They're the newspaper of the white middle class, particularly white uh, middle class women, the wives of the people who run Britain. That's how it's said. Financial Times is read by the people who own Britain. Uh, Telegraph is read by the conservatives who run Britain. And the Daily Mail is read by the wives of the people who run Britain. So you can imagine from that demographic, they would have had no truck with the murderers. That's a really important detail that, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Lawrences, despite the initial attempt by the police and by the media when they did pay attention to paint Stephen Lawrence as oh, a potential gang member or, or whatever, actually the Lawrences were almost the Daily Mail's idea of the model immigrant family or the model black family. Uh, and, um, the, yeah, the fact that um, that anti-poor anti white class snobbery was available to the Daily Mail to switch. They could switch quite easily from anti-black racism to, um, to as, you, yeah, as you put it, anti-trailer trash um, attitude. This is, a, this is a very British story. Like dichotomy. Yeah. Between um, the classes. Mm -hmm. uh, God-fearing, um, hard-working, middle-class Dorian and Neville juxtaposed against the white trailer trash. Yeah. And um, it's sinister that a newspaper, sinister but maybe predictable, that they would uh, latch on in that way. And a little confession here. Um, I could see the potential for them breaking through to the white middle class audience of Britain in a way that other black families or uh, relatives of yeah. victims couldn't mm -hmm. have. So, you know, call me a spin doctor if you like. Yeah. Um, I saw the opportunity here because in the past what had happened, Jane, is that we'd pitch to our own audiences, to the left, to black people. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the target audience we needed to hit if we wanted change in terms of legislation, in terms of policing, politics, media. And so I was laser focused on what my target audience was. And the media editor of the, um, um, the BBC, you can look it up online, said that this is what Mark Wadsworth, the TV presenter and reporter, crafted in terms of a media campaign and, and, and how successful it was. And then the other technique that I used was I'd spoken with Al Sharpton, the civil rights um, uh, activist leader in the United States, who'd actually come over to Britain and marched with us in 1991 when we had the Roland Adams march on Thamesmead in South East London. And there was a counter march by the BMP, which the police protected, by the way. And I said to, uh, I said to Al Sharpton, Reverend Al Sharpton, I went to meet him at the Dorchester. The BBC had brought him over for a programme. So we were able to sort of nab him for political purposes and solidarity purposes. And he was an expert at running family campaigns. 
victims of murders, racist murders, that sort of thing. He was an expert. And he said to me, what you need to do is separate yourselves as activists from the police and get a lawyer involved. Uh, so that they, the lawyer, deal with the police and you mm, are deal okay. with the politics and the media. Because the police, they run a overdrive campaign in these cases, not just with black victims, with white victims too, where they almost kidnap the family and control the narrative, which tends to be a law and order, pro-hang-them narrative. And they say and do all sorts of things that you wouldn't want them to say or do because of the police capture. And with the lawyer involved and them having to go through, I brought in Imran Khan, who is a newly qualified uh, lawyer. Uh, with him involved, they found it very difficult. They couldn't get at the family in the way that they got at and controlled other families. And so we were able to control the narrative. And they didn't like it. And it, all of this comes out in the McPherson report of how we handled, hand, handled that critical uh, line of communication. My dream last night was about Alibaba with the 40 thieves. Tom, Tom, the piper's son, he was there with me. I rode through a valley with a princess by my side. The Duke and the Duchess was there to meet me with a smile. Can you, I, I want to get on to the McPherson reports because I think that one reason why it's worth dwelling so long on the Stephen Lawrence case, if you want to understand the kind of more recent events of the Labour anti-Semitism affair, is that quite a lot of patterns and terms and ideas that were established in the Stephen Lawrence case sort of returned, sometimes in slightly perverse forms during this more recent episode. But before we get on to that, um, what, what about Nelson Mandela? How did, how did that happen? How, how did he come to speak up for the Lawrences? Well, I'll tell you how that happened. And again, it's about networking and contacts. Um, as a result of my Labour Party black section activism, uh, we had contacts with the African National Congress, the ANC, the PAC, Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, Azapo, uh, the liberation, black liberation movement in South Africa, Azania. And um, through that, they had observed what was happening with the Stephen Lawrence campaign. They had representatives in London. This is the ANC. And Nad Pillay called me one day. He was a very senior representative in London and said, Mark, we've been observing your work with the Stephen Lawrence family. Mandipa, Mandiba is going to be, this is Nelson Mandela, will be in London on Wednesday. Would you like him to meet the parents? This is all documented in that BBC. Yeah documentary, Stephen, a murder that changed the nation. 
three part. I said, would I? I was over the moon. I got straight onto the phone to Doreen and said, what's your diary looking like for Wednesday? <laughs> and she said, why? I said, because the most famous man in the world would like to meet you. She said, who? I said, Nelson Mandela. She said, can you pick me up and take me to, 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 to it? She was absolutely overwhelmed with joy. And so on Wednesday, I took her and Neville in my car, because I used to chauffeur them around, to the Athenaeum Hotel in Piccadilly. And we were ushered up to a suite by security, ANC security, and sat in the room, I remember quite distinctly, waiting for the great man. And then the door opened and he walked in. I just remember him like gliding, like a swan, like a mirrored lake, and with a big smile on his face. And he sat down and he wasn't pretentious. He just chatted with Doreen and Neville. And um, the empathy was fantastic, like an uncle, really. It was quite avuncular. And then he insisted on going outside onto the pavement. I think we'd alerted the news media, Sky was there. And he spoke with passion, fluency, and said, it seems those immortal words, it seems that a black life in Britain is worth as little as in South Africa. I mean, he'd broken every diplomatic protocol. Yeah. Don't forget, he was the deputy president mm. of the ANC at that point. He hadn't been uh, elevated to president. Oliver Tambo was still the president. And he certainly was not expected to involve mm. himself in internal uh, British politics. But uh, counterpose that with the fact that the prime minister hadn't said a word about the murder. The Queen certainly hadn't. No politician had said anything about the murder. Nobody cared. But Nelson Mandela cared. And after that, it was liftoff. It became mega. The story just became mega. So, so that was the, the light bulb moment, the, the, the breakthrough moment, the volcano moment. Thank you, Nelson. Rest in yeah. peace. Yeah, that, that's absolutely extraordinary, um, absolutely extraordinary description. Did it change Britain? Well, there was a hiatus, a hiatus because we had a conservative government. Uh, the Metropolitan Police was rotten to the core in terms of what happened with the investigation. As you mentioned a moment ago, that they were investigating Stephen and Dwayne Brooks, his friend who was with him when he was murdered, as potential gang members. Downplaying this, suggesting that it was a clash between two rival gangs, as if that makes a murder justifiable. And backpedaling. They knew the names of the murderers. White people were coming forward with the names. 
writing the names on a piece of paper, putting them under the yeah. windscreen wiper of a police car, going one man going to a police station, Plumstead Police Station, and walking up to the front desk and demanding to see the sergeant so that he could give the names of the murderers. They had apparently a database, which is the police, at Plumstead Police Station of known racists whom they should have contacted. And they did nothing. They left it locked up over the weekend. And I'm told by uh, police that there's a golden 24 hours in an investigation of a murder when forensics, when evidence can be collected. And that was lost. It was squandered. I mean, the catalogue of cock-ups or, you know, if you're into conspiracies, uh, wanton uh, uh, destruction of evidence is is catalogued in, in the McPherson report. An example, at one occasion, um, outside the home of one of the main suspects, there was supposed to be a surveillance uh, camera operator and he didn't have film in his camera. Yeah, obscene. Obscene. Um, taking days to actually put that person in place because he was actually um, spying on alleged black muggers or robbers. So you see their priorities. Uh, the suggestion that um, Norris, Norris's father, was a police informer, a very well-paid and well-known police informer in southeast London, and that he'd had conversations with police officers in CID saying, you know, go easy on my son. Go easy on investigating my son. You know, this was investigated by Paul Foote before he died. The whole notion of police collusion, connivance, conspiracy. I have to say the McPherson inquiry was disappointing in rejecting any notion of that. I think there's a lot more to come up. The eight I think that that's... Did the murder, even to this day, it's only Norris and Dobson, don't forget. I was at the Old Bailey when they were sent down. They were the accomplices. They didn't wield the knife. Neil Acourt, Jamie Acourt, if you saw that surveillance video when Scotland Yard after the Nelson Mandela um, happening, put surveillance cameras into the suspects, one of the homes of the suspects, and you see Neil Acourt with a carving knife thrusting down and saying how much he hated packies and niggers. Remember? And this is what we're going to do to them. Yeah. And that the pathologist said that that action of the stabbing into Stephen's shoulder and neck, in terms of the wound, it was the exact same action that that wound would have been caused by. And they're in jail now, yes, for drugs offences. Having lauded it up in Spain, 
for years and years, living at large, pretending they're the junior craze. Sorry to get passionate, but, you know, those murderers need to be nailed for murder, and they haven't been. Just the accomplices are in jail. And I won't rest until that's happened. I think the fact that so much was actually left unreconciled and unresolved uh, and in some important cases unpunished is is very revealing uh i think it was i think it was very interesting that that you said that you were disappointed in the mcpherson reports um marginalizing or sidelining any possibility of conspiracy because that document has been very influential in popularizing um, the idea of institutional racism. And in some ways, this has been a, an important advance that um, the left and anti-racist campaigners have been uh, wanting to happen for decades. Um, but on the other hand, it, it's, it, it's possible to argue that the McPherson report, in placing this emphasis on institutional racism that goes beyond the personal racism or ill intentions of individuals actually resulted in um, turning attention away from the way in which this, okay, this was institutional, but it was also rooted in personal racism of powerful people protecting each other. I have a difficulty with that person. Yeah. On that question of institutional racism, uh, a good friend of mine, Chris Mullard, Professor Chris Mullard, coined the term. He was the first to coin the term institutional racism decades beforehand when he was an advisor in Berkshire, an education department advisor. And he never meant it to be used in, in, in this way because mm. in no way should individuals be exonerated. So that you end up with a situation in which you're almost saying, well, the masonry, the brickwork yeah. is racist. Scotland Yard as a building is racist. No, Scotland Yard, which is the police headquarters, is populated by individual police officers. And they must be held to account. The management structures must be held to account because I'll tell you what's happened since McPherson. The management structures have become cleverer at disguising racism within their institution. And they taught the right talk and they've got the diversity campaigns and policies. But individual police officers on the ground may not call you a nigger anymore or a packy and know that they can get away with it. And they've got the body cams now, so they can't do certain things they could have done before and lied about. But their practices haven't changed. I mean, I live in Croydon. And the amount of times I'm driving down the road and I see two, three van loads of police officers pouncing on a young black man. And I almost say to myself, please let it not be another young black man. And I actually intervene. And we're setting up something called the liberation movement. And one of our first campaigns 
will be for us to take a leaf out of the book of 17-year-old Darnella Frazier, who filmed the George Floyd lynching. And I say to the police officers, not again. This is terrible optics. Who <laughs> ran loads of police yeah. officers and one young black man? Do you and want to go viral, me, officers? And they say to me, oh, but it's the demographics of the area. What would you expect? I just don't buy that. It's racial profiling that's going on. And I must tell you that I don't think I've ever intervened, and there have been many times when I have intervened, where they've even found uh, uh, a few grains of cannabis. No. They don't find anything. It is harassment. You know, I've got sons. I never taught them to be anti-police, but they ended up anti-police because of the way they were treat on, treated on the streets with disrespect, stop and search, strip search. It's a PR disaster. In fact, it's a human rights disaster. And so I don't see that the police have changed. They've put a lick of paint on their image, so they look better, but the practices haven't improved significantly. You know, a black young person or a black person is, is 10 times more likely to be stopped and searched than a white person in, in in London. It's probably the same in Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, you know, all around the country where there are black populations. So there's something very sick at the heart of policing in Britain. So the McPherson reports was supposed to be a huge reckoning with racism in Britain. Here's my skeptical argument that what actually happened there was that the kinds of often very effective grassroots anti-racism that you'd been involved in all your life and that had characterized much of the left in the 1970s and 1980s that was marginalized and what was privileged instead was a kind of anti-racism from above uh, a language of institutional racism, which criticised institutions while exonerating individuals and even allowing, as you describe, racist practices to go on, continue uh, unexamined and unchallenged. And it also uh, allowed institutions and individuals who had a huge history of using racism when it suited them Paul Dacre is a perfect example. Uh, New Labour is another perfect example. Uh, bodies and individuals who were more than happy to stoke up racist feelings uh, for political gain, they were allowed to use the Stephen Lawrence case and to use the McPherson report as... I don't want to say whitewashing here, a kind of anti-racist washing. Um, and it also made powerful bodies of state anti-racism, such as the Equalities and Human Rights Commission, the EHRC. 
And what I'd suggest is that this new dynamic where grassroots anti-racism from below was marginalized and uh, state anti-racism from above was made more powerful, that what I've argued is that this dynamic is crucial to understanding the Labour anti-Semitism affair. Because if we flash forward to 2015, Jeremy Corbyn becomes very unexpectedly the leader of the Labour Party and suddenly Labour has for the first time in its history got a, a leader who has come from the, the grassroots, has come from the activism parts of the Labour Party's um, contingent and that meant a kind of entry of this grassroots, highly local kind of anti-racism, the, the, your world, basically, into the machinery of official politics. And that immediately produced attention, attention that we saw last, last year with the publication of the EHRC's investigation of the Labour Party. Uh, and, well... I, I think it just percolates through the whole thing, but but maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Could you tell me what you were thinking in 2015 when Corbyn became leader and maybe take us into the events of 2016 where you first came under investigation as a member of the Labour Party after being accused of anti-Semitism? There is so much in that, James. In a sense, it's... Uh perspective that you've given rather than a question and an accurate one i don't want to leave mcpherson yet please no i've got time McPherson that has been weaponized and that is the mcpherson definition of what constitutes a racial incident now as anti-racist grassroots campaigners we argued for years that if a quote-unquote victim of a racist attack told the police that they thought that the incident had been a racist attack, then the police must investigate that incident as a potential racist attack not allow the police to decide whether they thought in the first instance it should be investigated in that way. So we fought for that to happen as a protection of victims and for them to have agency, as social scientists call it. And McPherson accepted that. Now, what would happen is that the incident of shit being thrown through your letterbox, a firebomb, racist graffiti, or literature, as I've had through my letterbox, should be investigated accordingly. If it was found after thorough investigation that in the incident wasn't racially motivated, maybe there's a dispute between two neighbours. It's got nothing to do with the colour of one of the neighbour's skin. It's just a neighbor's dispute or beef between two people uh, in uh, the street. 
that again is not ra racially motivated. If the police find that it is not racially motivated, then that's the end of that line of inquiry. You follow me? Yeah, yeah. But what has happened in the anti-Semitism situation is it's being said that if a, for example, Jewish person says, I am the subject of an anti-Semitic attack, an anti-Jewish attack, as was the case in, in the incident that I was involved in, then it is an anti-Semitic attack period. No investigation needed. It's good to be wise when you're young Cause you can only be young but for once Thank you for listening to this episode of The Popular Show. The discussion continues in our patrons only part two episode over at patreon.com forward slash the popular pod, where you'll also have access to our complete archive of bonus episodes. Enjoy.